Welcome, this is CopperCasts, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment and crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is Lorian Gable, CEO of Figment, a leading provider of staking technologies and blockchain infrastructure. Welcome, Lorian. Great to be here. So you're something of a, a serial entrepreneur. Um, so very curious to know how you went from building tech companies in the U.S. and Canada into staking. Yeah, so great question. Um, a, a little bit embarrassing because it's going to involve almost three decades of startups, which is painful to say. I have to, I have to acknowledge. Um, but so we, um, uh, myself, and my co-founders have always been in the internet infrastructure space. Um, so we've generally tried to find a piece of internet technology that we find have found interesting from you know almost a hobbyist perspective. Play with it literally in our basements or garages, and then see if there's a way to commercialize it. So we started one of the first commercial ISPs in Canada in the early 90s, uh, pre-browser actually, um, out of our parents' basement and grew that to a couple hundred people and then had a national data center and hosting company uh, also in Canada where we took um, old bank mainframe data centers, refurbished them, brought them up into hosting, and then was very early with um, actually an English-based company um, called Meshes Labs, which was one of the first cloud security providers. And so this is just by way of saying that generally we've tried to find a piece of um, internet-based infrastructure technology that we really find interesting and then see if we can commercialize it in some way. So, And with the with the staking, I mean, were you into digital assets yeah, and crypto? Yeah, so, so, you know, people find their way into Web3, um, in, which is which is something that's um, wonderful about the industry in multiple ways. Um, and so in between startups in 2018, we were, um, each one of the co-founders was interested in blockchain um, from a different perspective. Our CTO from purely like the cryptography is cool. It solves some real interesting CS problems. Um, uh, my other co-founder, Andrew, who's chief of product, really had some um, issues around privacy and platforms versus protocols and was like um, concerned about the dominance of um, some of the large platforms, which I, we might talk about, and maybe blockchain was a way of decentralizing that power. Um, and I was sort of interested in from a um, historical and sociological perspective and sort of looking at concentration of power. So we all sort of came at it from different ways. Um, and right around that time, you know, we actually thought we were a little bit late in 2018, 2019. Um, but right around that time, people were thinking about alternative ways to run blockchains and proof of work, um, which powers Bitcoin. Um, nothing I'm about to say is um, a negative statement about Bitcoin. You can put, it, put away your virtual um, projectiles. Uh, I own Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin. Um, however, people were wondering, like, are there better ways to run a blockchain um, versus large um, energy consuming, um, compute power consuming facilities? And so proof of stake, there's some white papers floating around the Ethereum community. And when we looked at it, we're like, huh. If this actually works, um, if this is a viable way to run a blockchain, then it would be something we're probably be pretty good at. So before we started recording, um, we were talking about you know how you define staking, and there's a lot of either misconceptions, misunderstandings, or or just people don't even know what it is. So give us the gospel on what staking is. Great, absolutely. So staking, um, like many terms in in the space, which can sometimes be. Um, overly complicated, um, like Web3, for example, is poorly defined. So if you ask 10 people what Web3 is, you'll probably get 10 different answers. Um, sometimes that could be a good thing, sometimes not so much. Similar in staking. So staking refers to a number of activities um, that happen in Web3 um, and, and the blockchain. What we're talking about here is what we've tried to define as protocol staking. And so that refers to a proof of stake. And proof of stake is a, you can think of it as an operating system for blockchains. So um, Bitcoin was originally built on proof of work. Um, you're probably familiar with that. Um, large data centers consuming a lot of electricity and compute power, um, very effective for securely running um, Bitcoin. And 
what I'm about to say is not a negative comment on Bitcoin in any way. You can put away your virtual projectiles. I love Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin. However, um, people uh, three or four years ago were seeing if there was a, a different way, perhaps a more energy efficient way, perhaps a way that was more scalable to run a blockchain. And so proof of stake was um, was that idea. Um, and I can talk about the difference between proof of stake and proof of work. But essentially, it's a different way. You can think of it as an operating system for blockchains. Um, and it's a different way of securing um, a blockchain aligning interests within that community. So let's let's take that a step further. Um, transactions go into a block, and then right. that block needs to be verified by the network, and that's that's, that's right. consensus. That's right. And that happens uh, through computing power on a proof of work chain. That's right. But on a proof of stake network, right? That's done differently. That's right. So. Essentially, what you're trying to do is align interests by um, putting value at risk. So in the case of uh, proof of work, people spend a lot of money on compute power, um, electricity, data centers, etc. Um, and therefore, that aligns your interest because you've invested a lot in um, uh, being a good actor, essentially, on, 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 that, on a given blockchain. With proof of stake, instead of compute power, um, what you're essentially taking is uh, fiat, real world money, and converting it into the native token of the blockchain in question. So you have value locked up, um, it, it, but instead of it being electricity or compute power, it's essentially a token which you've converted um, regular money into, into this token. So you can now then stake that. Um, and when you stake it, you're essentially running the protocol. So um, as an example, if you have 32 ETH, um, maybe not me, but probably you, given 30 days, could figure out actually how to run an Ethereum node. Um, and then essentially you stake um, your 32 ETH to that node. And now you're, you have that at risk. So if you do it poorly, um, you might suffer some loss there. Um, and if you do it correctly, then you will share in um, running the network and the rewards generated, i.e. the yield of the, of the protocol. So um, essentially, you know, to summarize, if you need to know one thing about the difference between proof of stake and proof of work is it essentially brings together the two functions of running the protocol securing the protocol, processing transactions, and the token holder. So in Bitcoin, they're separate. There's two audiences, they're miners and token holders. Um, with proof of stake, that brings that function together. So you as a token holder can, if you want, you have the right, not the obligation, to participate in consensus and share in those benefits. So this is something you mentioned in your, your show and tell segment for us. And listeners, if you haven't seen it, it's on our YouTube channel and on our socials as well. Um, you had a great graph that showed the growth of proof of stake versus right. proof of work. I mean, Figment started in 2018. Did you kind of predict that growth? Did you did you make a bet that yes. proof of stake so, was going to outpace proof of work? So there's definitely an element of luck involved. Um, so one of the risks to our business in early you know um, 2019 um, when we launched was that proof of stake would fail for some reason. Um, it would be insecure. Um, it wouldn't scale. Um, it was definitely an untested way to run run a blockchain at that time. And so our business obviously was contingent upon proof of stake working. And so um, uh, fortunately, and um, perhaps um, with some luck, I would like to say we thought, huh, maybe it could work. We didn't, to be honest, we didn't know if it would work. Um, the industry has basically grown up, and most of the new blockchains that have launched of any significance in the last two or three years have been based on proof of stake. Um, it's worked. It started to scale. So Solana, Avalanche, Polkadot, um, a bunch of names you'll be familiar with. And then finally, Ethereum is making the transition. Um, this year, it's called the merge, um, probably this year. And and Ethereum will be moving to proof of stake, and I think that's sort of the final, um, the the final sort of validation that this is a way, uh, a a way that most 
blockchains, a majority of blockchains will run on proof of stake going forward. So we've been very lucky in that regard. It could have um, uh, happened that, you know, it failed for some reason and, you know, we would have had to either pivot or wouldn't have had a business. So. And over that period of time, have there, you know, has, I guess the concept of proof of stake hasn't evolved much, but maybe the application of it has, like, how have you seen this part of the crypto ecosystem change over four years? Right. So one, just um, the number of blockchains that run on proof of stake has gone from just a few um, to tens, maybe hundreds. Um, and certainly if you sort of look at, you know, the top 15 or 20 uh, blockchains by developer adoption or market cap or whatever metric you, you like, um, proof of stake is definitely becoming the dominant consensus mechanism. So just, you know, basically on volume of developers using proof of stake or investors investing in proof of stake has grown significantly. There's also a bunch of um, varieties of proof of stake, and this may be a little bit too technical in the weeds, um, but essentially there's two, there's there's delegated proof of stake and regular proof of stake. Um, and so delegated proof of stake is something like Solana, for example, where one node um, can take as much stake, there's no limits on that. Um, and then there's the type of proof of stake that Ethereum is based on. And that's essentially a fixed number of Ethereum, 32 in this case, um, to run a node. And uh, you have to have that exact number. And then more than 32, um, you spin up another node, essentially. Okay. How do you envisage the sort of the regulation of staking sort of evolving as well? Because obviously there was none four years ago. That's right. Now regulators, governments, legislatures, they're still trying to understand it, like the rest of us, I guess. Yep. So where do you see the impact already of regulation and where do you foresee it? So regulation, um, I have a little bit of a bit on sort of my general view of regulation, at least at least in the West, um, is that we'll um, unfortunately um, get there in three to five years or fortunately in three to five years and unfortunately in an, an imperfect process and um, probably a vaguely manageable outcome um, for the industry, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, let's, you know, um, what's the saying? Um, the Churchill saying the Americans will do the right thing only after they've tried everything else. So I, th I think that's the case here, too, is that um, there, it's too late to ban the industry. So we're over that hurdle. Um, it would be great if someone had a theory of the case. This is a technology that is a competitive advantage um, and we don't. Um, but we'll basically get there um, and within three to five years, we'll have a framework that's workable and, and imperfect, but um, good enough, basically. So that's my general view on um, the progress of the industry, at, at least in the West. Um, with respect to proof of stake, um, it's a it's a fairly unique um, process, which doesn't really fit any of the prior models used in traditional finance. Um, for one, it's non-custodial. So what that means, if um, you're an institutional client of Figment, staking sounds like you're giving us your tokens. Um, the other words for staking, however, are like nomination, election, delegation. And essentially, if you're using a custodian like Copper, for example, um, the private keys don't leave your control or Copper's control. It's really an on-chain transaction um, that gives us the right to run the infrastructure on your behalf. So um, in that sense, from a regulatory perspective, you don't have to worry about, you know, if um, we're based in Canada, if Canada were to disappear or Figment were to disappear, um, there's effectively no loss of funds for the client. Um, so that's, so that's one interesting aspect that like regulators will have to learn about. Um, the other one is that even the value that's transmitted um, doesn't go through us. 
So um, if you stake tokens to a typical proof, you know, a generic proof stake protocol, you will earn some tokens um, in return for participating in the network. And even that happens on chain. So again, we don't control those tokens. Um, we can't stop them. We can't do anything with them. Um, and so it is really a transaction that happens all on chain as, as someone staking. So I think that those two aspects of, um, of staking are something that you know, we have some education to do with regulators, but make it fairly unique and not necessarily have like a direct analog to traditional finance. And I guess that, that, that lack of a analog to traditional finance is causing some confusion for regulators and for participants in the industry as well. I think about SEC's clampdown on like block buying Celsius right. because they have interest bearing accounts. That's right. And, you know, is there a, a risk or is it even true that, say, like staking rewards are an interest bearing account? And you right. It, 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 it can look at that, you know, it's um, it can look like that a little bit. Um, but. The, the big difference is, you know, it, it is as if um, you as a Visa credit card holder, this is not the best analogy in the world, but it's as if you as a Visa credit card holder were actually running part of the Visa network and processing other people's transactions and sharing in the benefits. So it's not as if it's a passive investment. Um, there's no counterparty risk. Like if you lend someone money, like as I said, if we disappear, um, there's no risk of loss essentially to, to the person doing it. So it looks a little bit like interest, but not really because you actually have to do work for it. I, you actually have to stake, which means you actually have to run the protocol. And in return for that work, you're going to earn, you know, whatever value is captured by the protocol. So again, has some of the, some of the attributes as in your, um, you're doing something with your tokens and earning more in return, but not in a lender-debtor mm -hmm. type relationship. So again, it's subtle but important difference. And do you get the sense that regulators get that now or they're still unpicking that? So no, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think so. Okay. So um, we've, we, you know, we have, we're members of industry associations in both Canada um, and the U.S. Um, and we've started to educate, you know, we, we're happy to talk to regulators or politicians and we do a fair amount of that. Um, there has been some, a little bit of movement in the case of the IRS. So um, how do you treat um, these rewards? as income or capital gains and when do they happen and we've actually made some pretty good progress in the last year in that respect but no it's um slow and laborious do you also that just reminded me like do you also have to then um, distinguish between like airdrops for instance yeah absolutely because airdrops are a whole another complicated matter um and airdrops are different because you don't you just have to hold the token you don't actually, and, and in fact, you don't actually have any, you can just be airdropped in something. You may not want it. Um, you may not use it. You may not even know you have it, but there is value there. So um, that's one of the big differences with staking. You kind of always know you're staking. You've made a conscious decision. Um, you know what you're er earning for doing that. So there's probably some analogs there too. Um, but again, it's a, it's a fairly subtle distinction, which is going to take some time for education. And the, the education bits that you're able to contribute, you know, you, you mentioned engaging with, you know, regulators and dialogue. Has that something that's always been one of the objectives at Figment to, to be a, a leadership voice in the staking it, community or is it new? Yeah, so we've um, we made a conscious decision early on just to serve institutions um, and clearly they have... Um, you know, regulation is very important for institutions. So um, that's always been our audience. We don't serve consumers intentionally. Um, 
we, we very much focused on you know VC funds or asset managers or custodians or exchanges um, like Copper as customers, and so for that audience is obviously the one that mo- has been most concerned with regulation. So we've always, um, I think we've put our best foot forward in that respect on education. Um, we've done a lot of, you know, we produce a lot of content. We've done a lot of pieces on, you know, sort of the tax implications of staking, et cetera. So we've always felt it's very important. Um, and so far uh, for, I think, because of the actual differences between staking and, for example, interest or lending or yield farming, um, there's been a relatively light regulatory impact um, on exactly what we do. And is one of the challenges just how multi-jurisdictional blockchain and crypto is? I mean, you're a Toronto-based company, but you've That's got right. teams sort of all over the world, but you're still not Yeah, I think we're in 20, 23 countries and uh, for employees and probably at least that many for customers. Um, but yeah, that is, um, you know, again, blockchain is, um, uh, can be anonymous and is entirely international. So um, it does complicate which jurisdictions um, you need to deal with regulation on. You know, we're based in North America, so that's obviously our focus. Um, but clearly, that is one of the issues generally for the industry is, it is that it is an entirely international phenomenon with all the positives and negatives associated with that. And as Figment's grown um, beyond the staking service, you guys, I think, also have an investment arm now? Yeah, we launched a VC um, uh more as a bit of a test, we have a we fit, we sit in a fairly unique place within the ecosystem. So we run we're involved very early on these proof of stake protocols. We were involved in governance. We run on testnet, and so we tend to see um, which projects um, have promise um, and work, and we um, we actually help them launch. And so we don't get sort of kicked out by larger VCs who can have some sharp elbows. You know, we're seen as being um, sort of friendly capital that can necessarily help launch a protocol. So we did launch our first fund last year. Um, we basically were very narrowly focused on um, proof of stake based protocols where we can run infrastructure and have expertise. Um, we know all the players, we know the founders. Um, but yeah, so we can now sort of offer new protocols, um, governance support, capital, and then obviously um, launch their blockchain on our, on our infrastructure. So in the VC space, like when you go, when you look at early stage investment, a lot of the focus from the investors is on, you know, the founders and the quality of the team and their experience and their history. But in this space, I mean, that's still probably true, but you also have to be really concerned with the technology they're developing and the quality of that. Yeah, that's sort of from an investing perspective, um, why we think uh, we could actually, you know, being a bunch of infrastructure people, why we thought we'd be successful deploying capital, because it's a very different skill set, obviously. And um, we generally are involved with these new layer one, layer two protocols very early. So we run testnet infrastructure, we work with the teams long before they've launched. And so we have a pretty good sense for what's real, um, what has a decent chance of um, success, who's building a community. And so in a sense, our tech due diligence is actually done by running um, with these protocols before they launch. So looking ahead at what's coming up this year, um, we talked about the merge a little bit before in your in your video segment. Is there a, a risk to these new protocols that are launching that when, when the merge happens, you know, given how big the Ethereum community is already, that they will just gobble up all the capacity or all the developers, all the communities? Or is it you know, the scalability of the merge, uh, ETH 2.0, it will serve one audience, but the protocols that, let's say, you're investing in now or the other ones that exist already, they have enough of a use case on their own to thrive with. Yeah, so um, that's a, it's a bit of a philosophical question. So when we originally launched, um, in addition to proof of stake, um, 
possibly failing or succeeding, and, and our success depended on that, was also a view that um, it was going to be a multi-chain world. So when we launched, if you thought there was only going to be Bitcoin or perhaps Bitcoin and Ethereum, then we clearly wouldn't have a business. Um, and now I think we've gotten to, you know, three, four years later, I think people are generally comfortable with the notion that there are not going to be one or two blockchains at scale, that we are in a multi-chain world. I think that the question now is, is there going to be 25, 50, 100, 10,000 um, blockchains that actually have real usage on them? And I think that that's the open question. If you, if you maybe sort of pick a number, I think there'll be more than 50. Um, I don't know if there'll be 10,000, but you're definitely seeing, you know, we have a developer tools business um, uh, called Ember, just renamed it from Data Hub. Um, and we see more and more developer behavior using multiple protocols to deploy smart contracts or dApps. So they'll use a layer one, and then they'll use a protocol like the graph for search. Um, and what you're really seeing is even specific, you know, DEXs will use multiple protocols. And so we're certainly seeing that behavior sort of the ground developer level where um, people are using multiple blockchains, each for their specific purpose. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I, I don't know if that answers your question directly, but I think we're definitely headed toward a multi-chain world where each chain has a specific use case. There will be large dominant ones, um, obviously Ethereum, um, but I think there's lots of room. So if you think about like things that have happened in the industry, it seems like every year there's a, a trend or, or something. So like the summer of 2020 was the summer of DeFi. 2021, denominated by NFTs. 2022, still early days. What's Yeah, what's uh, gonna great be question. Thing? So um, NFTs continue to grow. Um, we, you know, on our developer tools platform, we have a number of the larger NFT platforms that use us. Um, uh, taxes those blockchains. Um, I would say it's probably cross-chain communication, generically speaking. So there's a couple, um, you know, for example, there's two large um, communities, Polkadot and Cosmos, Tendermint, um, that are basically fundamentally built around uh, the tools for cross-chain communication. And I think if we are in a multi-chain world, um, the bridging um, and the communication between various blockchains can be super important. So that's an area one that we're investing in from the VC side and which we see a huge amount of developer activity. And I think you're going to continue to see that experimentation this year. So if I had to sort of say I would be those translation devices between blockchains is an area that's going to grow significantly this year. So it's, it's somewhat of a less sexy topic, I guess, like yeah. interoperability. It doesn't have the it's same media. Not as, not as good as like um, uh, NFTs and yeah. art and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's not quite as exciting that, but I think um, it's going to enable a whole host of experimentation. That's going to be, um, it's going to be pretty cool, but yeah, it's definitely not as sexy as NFTs. <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you. This has been a very enlightening conversation, but we have about 10 questions that we ask everyone. Okay. So if you wouldn't mind running through them with us, uh, don't think too much about it. Just let me know what you think. So, um, where do you see the staking industry in one year versus 10 years? So um, if the trends continue, um, I think it will continue to dominate how blockchains are run. So if we're at 50% at the end of this year, I think we'll be up to 80 or 90% of the market would be based on proof of stake, with the exception of Bitcoin, which shouldn't change, will never change, ought not to change. Okay. If you could change one thing about the staking industry or the crypto industry, what would it be? So this is, this is a definitional issue, but staking right now means a whole host of activities. So um, there's people refer to, you know, I, I use two, this can be a, a long answer to a short question. So there's two types of um, ways to generate um, yield or earnings from crypto assets. Um, one is a bucket of activities that are yield farming and lending, um, 
uh, liquidity provision, and people refer to that as staking too, just to confuse things. And then there's what we do, which is protocol staking, um, which is the less riskier activity, fairly passive, and you're actually running the blockchain. So what I would hope is for some definitional clarity um, between um, a whole set of activities within blockchains um, and the term staking. Is there a piece of technology in your life you couldn't live without? Yes. Um, not online, though. Probably it would be snowboarding equipment. <laughs> so I live in the mountains. Um, I spend a fair amount of time in the mountains um, and uh, I have a lot of gear. And so if you count gear as technology, then that would probably be the ones that I couldn't live without. I suspect that answers my next question, which would be, what does your weekend look like if you get time off? Right. So um, as I mentioned, I w- I'm fortunate enough to live in Wyoming. It's like the best place in the world. So don't get me started. All my friends are tired of me singing the praises of uh, the great state of Wyoming um, with beautiful mountains and lakes and rivers and all that stuff. But usually uh, in the winter, you can find me um, backcountry skiing um, and in the summer camping at lakes, etc. Off the grid if possible. Are there any films, movies that you can watch over and over again and never get tired of? Oh, that's a that's a great question. So I used to, I don't know if this is common. I used to watch a lot more movies than I don't know if this is a trend, but I, th- I feel like people don't watch movies as much. Um, what's a great movie that I've watched? You know, there's a really re- I'm going to get in trouble for saying this one. There's a really weird movie um, called Secretary with Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, which is which is a great movie, which I think I need to watch again. <laughs> but it's a strange one. So don't hold it against me. But it is a very weird movie. Putting yourself out there. I'm with that putting yourself out there with that one. <laughs> you know, I could have chosen like a science fiction one. It just came up in a recent conversation. So it's top of mind. So okay. don't hold it against me. I didn't make the movie, but it's worth watching. Okay. Um, do you have any catchphrases or mottos that you live by? Um, I jokingly refer to my t- title as um, Chief Stoic. Um, so I really see sort of one of my functions is trying to um, uh, bring some long-term perspective and calmness to what can otherwise be like a crazy industry. And we've grown a lot. You know, we've sort of, you know, we've probably added 150 people in the last year. And so really just trying to take a long-term view, um, uh, take a deep breath. It's all going to be okay, even in the chaos. So um, I generally have a, um, I don't know if that's a saying, but generally try to have a fairly stoic view of life and, um, so speaking of chaos, then, who should yeah. we all follow on Twitter? <laughs> who should we all follow on Twitter? Um, well, we should follow you on Twitter. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, who are some of the best people in the, in the crypto world? Yeah, I don't have anyone that sort of stands out in, in that front. Okay. What was the last thing that's? Oh, you know what? Oh. I have a good one for you. Oh, it's here. I just thought of it. Um, again, non-crypto, you should follow Jimmy Chin. Jimmy Chin? Yeah. Just look it up and follow Jimmy Chin. Again, okay. non-crypto, but... That's good. Trust me. All right. What was the last thing that surprised you? What was the last thing that surprised me? Um, that's a great question. Need a little more surprise in my life, clearly. <laughs> this is what surprised me. Um, I've been in London, um, your hometown, um, a fair amount in the last few months, and I've been really surprised by the level of uh, the growth of the the tech community and the blockchain community in particular. London, I think, was very traditionally like tradfi yep. based, and you know um, there was a little bit of break during COVID. And I hadn't been there, and it's really great to see there's actually a really active startup scene in London, um, and in particular blockchain. So that's that's a surprise. Cool. 
Uh, who do you think the next guest we should have on our show is? Who's good to talk to? Hmm. Um, that's a good suggestion, too. Who's a good speaker? You want someone who's like really... Um, oh, Mike Novogratz at Galaxy. That would be great. How's that? He's a character. If you can introduce us, that'd be great. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, last question. If you somehow managed to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask him one question or her, what would it be? Um, why did you... What motivated you? What were you concerned about? Um, to put this technology out into the world. Cool. That's it. Thanks very much, Lauren. It's been great talking. Thank you. I appreciate the time. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Lauren's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find her on Twitter at CopperHQ or find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which includes links to all the week's top stories as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review on whichever streaming platform you're using. And if you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And of course, this show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Tally Spear, with support from Melee Mountfort, Evil Yvette, and Kate Light. New episodes coming out fortnightly, and in the meantime, stay safe.